Christmas Eve, 1945. Families gathered around the tree, wrapped in tinsel and lights. Presents all around, waiting to be opened by the hands of excited children. It's a time of joy, reminiscing, and looking forward to what the new year will soon bring. But unfortunately for the Sauter family, this happy Christmas tale has a much different ending. The magic of Christmas quickly disappeared just after midnight in the Sauter house in Fayetteville, West Virginia. By dawn, their lives would be forever changed. More than 75 years later, and the area is still haunted by the mystery of the Sauter family and that shocking Christmas Eve. I'm Casey Gentile. And I'm Autumn Collins. Welcome to Crom in the Coalfields. This podcast is brought to you by Notoriously Morbid and Rosen Quessenberry Funeral Chapels. When originality is everything, Notoriously Morbid has you covered. We offer a full array of exciting cosmetics, and if alternative clothing is your style, we have it. Check us out online or stop by. Notoriously Morbid. Embrace your beautiful darkness. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love? Express your own wishes and avoid conflicts among family members. Call Sandy Evans at Rosenquist and Berry today. Our story begins with an Italian immigrant named George Sauter, who found himself in small town West Virginia. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, he moved to Smithers in Fayette County and worked as a truck driver. But George was ambitious, and he was known for being a good mechanic. He began his own trucking company that proved to be very successful. And one day he walked into a local store and his life forever changed. He instantly fell in love with the owner's daughter named Jenny, who was also an Italian immigrant. And the rest is history. The couple got married and started a family in Fayette County. They had 10 kids between 1923 and 1943. So with a successful business and a big, happy family, the Sauters had a lot to be thankful for on that Christmas Eve. Now picture this. World War II is over. The country is finally at peace. It's Christmas Eve and all seems right in the world. George and Jenny Sauter have built a successful life for their family, and in 1945, they were ready to celebrate. David and Melody Bragg write in their book, West Virginia Unsolved Murders, their oldest son, John, had just returned home from the military. Another son, Joe, was still away in the army, but with the war now over, they were anxiously awaiting his return home. It was Christmas after all, and George and Jenny gave their presents to the kids. Around 10 that night, George and Jenny decided to go to bed. The kids were so excited about their new toys, and they wanted to stay up and play. George and Jenny decided to call it a night and let the kids stay up and enjoy the last few hours of their Christmas Eve. As it got later into the night, the children started to get tired. The two oldest boys, John and George Jr., went to bed first and were fast asleep before the rest of their siblings went to bed. The rest of the children, Maurice, Martha Lee, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, all soon followed. All of the siblings slept in the upstairs bedrooms, except this night one of the siblings, the oldest daughter Marion, fell asleep downstairs on the couch. Around midnight, everything was quiet in the Sauter household and all 11 people inside of the home were fast asleep, but that would quickly change. A little after midnight, the phone rang. Jenny quickly went downstairs to answer the phone, trying not to wake the rest of the house. And the caller on the other end of the phone asked for someone Jenny didn't recognize. She told the caller they had the wrong number and she went back to sleep. 30 minutes later, she was woken up again. This time, she heard what she thought was a rock hitting the roof of the house. 
Jenny assumed it was nothing and didn't want to wake her sleeping husband. Once again, she fell back to sleep. Within 30 minutes, she woke up for a third time. However, this time she wasn't exactly sure what woke her up. And then it suddenly hit her. Her heart drops. She smells smoke. She rushes downstairs and sees a fire burning in the corner of her husband's office. The heat was already so intense from the fire that she couldn't reach the phone that was on the office desk to call for help. So panic is setting in and Jenny knows that she has got to get her family out of that house. She yells for George back upstairs. She told Marion, who was asleep on the couch, to rush into their bedroom and get the youngest sibling, Sylvia. The two oldest boys, John and George Jr., rushed downstairs to see what was going on. They yelled for their siblings to get out of the house, then turned their focus to extinguishing the flames that were spreading even further and quicker. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the flames to spread, and before they knew it, the fire was already at the foot of the stairs. They were trapped and had no way of getting to the rest of the children upstairs. Jenny and her youngest daughter were already outside when George and two of the sons joined them, desperate to come up with a plan to save the children inside. George broke a window to the upstairs staircase. He always kept a ladder on the side of the house, so he knew he could use that to get back inside. However, on this night, the ladder George always kept in the same spot was mysteriously gone. So, time for plan B. He ran to his truck, hoping he could back it against the house, climb on top of it, and get inside. But the truck wouldn't start. He spotted his other truck, so he ran to it and got the same result, no start. While all of this was going on, the daughter that was asleep on the couch ran to a neighbor's house to call 911. They couldn't get through. Someone driving by around 1 that morning saw the house in flames and also tried to call the fire department with no luck. After many failed attempts, the passerby finally got a hold of the fire chief for the Fayetteville Fire Department. However, it was still of no help. The fire chief said the war had taken so many young men from the Fayetteville area and they were super short-staffed. It wasn't until 7 that morning on Christmas Day that the fire department finally arrived at the Sauter home. At that point, the house was already in ashes and the family was in shock and grieving. By 2.30 that afternoon, the house was a smoldering pile of ash. Casey, that is almost six hours that those two had to sit and watch their house burn to the ground, thinking that their children are inside. It's also not a big town. I mean, I know this is 1945. Things aren't the way that they are today, I'm sure. I mean, communication we know at that point wasn't as easy as it is today, but still, six hours. Again, a holiday, I get it, okay, but... That doesn't seem reasonable at all. No, it doesn't. Six hours is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable amount of time when you're watching everything that you have worked for and built burn to the ground. And I mean, can you imagine being George? He tried all of these outlets to try and save his kids and to no avail. And knowing that every single thing that you've done, he truly exhausted himself trying to find any way to reach his kids. It's heartbreaking. It is. So George and Jenny, along with their remaining children, were taken to a shelter. The men had a few minor injuries that needed tending to, but George, the grieving father that he was, refused to leave the home until a search was started to find the remains of his children. Here's our editor, Brian C., reading a quote George gave to reporters on that Christmas day. I tried to start the truck. It had been starting all right every morning. 
and then I tried to start the other one up the hill, but it wouldn't start either. Maybe I choked it too much. I couldn't get anywhere to help. We didn't know what to do. Their mother was running around screaming, but I couldn't help her. It burned fast. The wind was blowing hard. We didn't see any of them. They were upstairs. The girls in the room at the back. Some people stopped. I think there was a serviceman with them, but I don't know. We didn't know what was going on. The search begins for the children's remains. Investigators are looking for 15-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha Lee, 9-year-old Lewis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 6-year-old Betty Sauter. However, the Sauter family's grief only intensified when the fire chief told them they could not find a single trace of their bodies, and he believed the fire burned their bodies into ash. With nothing left to do, the Sauters were forced to accept this answer. Their family would never again be complete. Four days after the fire, a bulldozer was brought in to fill in the area where the fire burned and the home once stood. Determined to have some sort of final resting place for their children, the couple planned to fence in a small area and plant flowers as a memorial. On December 30, 1945, death certificates were entered at the Fayette County Courthouse for the five children. The cause of the fire? It was ruled accidental with faulty wiring. Two years after the fire, the Sauters were told something that flipped this case upside down. A local minister told George and Jenny that the fire chief was telling people in the community that the children died in the fire, and he knew this because of what he found at the scene. He claimed that he found a heart in the debris of the home. The minister called the fire chief and asked him if this was true, to which he told him it was, and that he buried the heart in a box at the scene. The minister was obviously perplexed and asked him why he never told the Sauters about this discovery. He said he had his own reasons for not telling the family, but wouldn't explain any further. After George and Jenny heard of this, they immediately began calling the fire chief, and they wanted answers. But it took several times of them reaching out before they finally agreed to meet with the fire chief, and he met them at the scene to show them where he buried the box with the heart. On July 1, 1947, a sealed dynamite box was dug up from the debris of the home. The fire chief confirmed that this was indeed the box that he buried. George and Jenny wanted an impartial expert to look at this, and they wrapped it up and took it to Gay Funeral Home in Montgomery. This is where a funeral director examined the contents, and in a sworn statement, he said this in part, quote, On opening the box and examining its contents, I found a liver wrapped in newspaper. The said liver, I do firmly believe, was a beef liver and weighing between four and five pounds. A beef liver. A beef liver, Casey. We heard it right. What? What? I'm, I'm perplexed. I have, I think, 85 questions. So this is my thought. The fire chief probably wanted to have the Sauter family feel like they could have some kind of closure maybe. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that you can ever really have closure, but maybe he wanted them to think like, yep, you're right. The ashes were here. This is where, you know, unfortunately their bodies were burned and let's let's have this in this memorial so we can always remember them. But I think it was maybe poor taste. Maybe there was good intent behind it. I guess that's something that we'll never know, but this seems way more damaging and just not good. You know, like there's yeah. a, there was another way to do this. Wouldn't you think 
that when you tell the family that they found a heart, they're going to get it tested. They're going to want to know what child that belonged to. So eventually, we were going to find out. What was it on him? A beef liver. You heard it again. A beef liver. So obviously, at this point, the family has some serious questions because things just aren't adding up. And the more they search for answers, the more confused they become. More questions started, so the family brought in a pathologist from Washington, D.C. for an expert opinion. Back to the ash they went, combing through the rubble for any possible trace of remains. And during the search, they found a partially burnt dictionary, which was in the children's room. So after finding this, the pathologist had doubts that the fire could completely destroy all of the bones, let alone bones from five people and only partially burn a book. So... Throughout their search, they did find a small section of a vertebrae, so that small bone was sent to the Smithsonian. The analysis found the vertebrae probably belonged to someone between ages of 16 and 17, 22 years old max. The findings also said that the vertebrae showed no signs of being exposed to the fire, and we know the oldest child killed was 15. So my question that I know we're never going to have answered is, and who did that belong to? One of the many questions that we have that I don't think we're ever going to find the answer to, sadly. So the FBI was called in, and that's when they agreed to turn the investigation into a possible kidnapping. The Sauters offered a $5,000 reward for any information. A woman from Charleston called and said she saw the children in Charleston the day after the fire with an Italian family. One year later, the woman called again to say she saw Lewis in Charleston with a man. A flood of calls and information came pouring in, but nothing substantial ever landed. After two years, the FBI withdrew from the case. The Sauter family still could just not come to terms with the thought that their children died in that fire with all of these mysterious happenings going on surrounding the investigation. Countless tips came in with different leads that ended up going nowhere. They wrote letters to the governor pleading to take another look at the case. That also went nowhere. State police investigated between 1951 and 52, and they came up with nothing. The Sauters even ended up hiring several private investigators, but unfortunately that was just a scam to take their money. One last mysterious clue came 20 years after the fire. In 1968, an envelope addressed to Miss Sauter arrived at the Sauter home with no return address. Inside was a photo of a young man somewhere between 24 to 28 years old wearing white pants, a shirt, and sitting in front of a window. On the back of the photo, Jenny found a few words written, and it said, quote, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys. A90132 or 35, end quote. Lewis Sauter was nine years old on the night of the fire, but Jenny was convinced that was her son who would in fact be the same age as the man that was in that photograph. But this lead came up empty, just like every other one in the past. Jenny, however, was given some sort of peace with the belief that her children were not dead and were somewhere out in the world alive and well. The years passed and George and Jenny were left with the grief and the many questions they had surrounding the investigation. But the Sauters never gave up hope and they made one final plea for information. George placed a billboard-sized sign outside of their home with photos of all six missing children. 
The sign itself became somewhat of an infamous landmark in the area, but nothing ever came from it. They never got any leads or any tips. And as the years continued to pass with no clues and no help, George and Jenny eventually died without a single answer as to what happened to their children on that Christmas Eve night. All right, Autumn. So there are a lot of questions that we have about this case. Of course, it's presumed that the children died in the fire. Or is it? Are you ready? I'm ready. So, as we know, the internet can be a crazy place, and there are a ton of conspiracy theories online about this case. Autumn has not heard any of them, so I'm going to go over a few of them, and we'll talk about them. So, the first one is a bit odd. So, there was a stranger who came to the Sauter home a few months before the fire happened in the fall, and it was a man asking about hauling work. So he went to the back of the house and pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought that was strange because he had just had the wiring checked by a local power company, which told him that it was in great condition. So that's suspicious. That is very sus. I mean, so people think that that guy might have something to do with it. That's the thought. Why would he say this in particular is going to cause a fire. And also, why is he going to the back of the house if he's just there to talk about hauling work? Yeah. Doesn't that's make weird. It doesn't make any sense. And there's really no that we can find report of who this man is and other than it was just someone who asked about hauling work. Okay, so my first thought is this guy came. It was quote-unquote to talk about that. However, what if he was coming just to scope out the property, the house? It's possible. And we've talked about how the ladder was gone. Maybe he saw the ladder and knew to move it. Interesting. And especially knew that there were two cars on property. Mm -hmm. So that's just something to keep in the back of your mind. Interesting. This one, though. Okay. So this next conspiracy is the one that I think I align with the most. So we know that the Sauter family, George and Jenny, both were immigrants from Italy. And George was very outspoken for his dislike for the Italian dictator at the time, who was Mussolini. Talked about it quite frequently within the community. This is reported multiple places. So keep that in mind, Autumn. Around the same time that that guy came and asked about hauling work, they had another man show up to their house and tried to sell them family life insurance well george declined and this man was furious and he said quote your expletive house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed you are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about mussolini autumn's jaw has just (laughs) dropped oh wow and also The older Sauter sons also recalled something that they thought was like really strange. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along the highway intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. What? Yeah. And now I don't know that that's the same man that said like that was trying to sell the family insurance or if it was the man who asked about the hauling work, but there was a man watching. And but that quote, your house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. That is a direct threat. That is a direct threat, and that's exactly what happened. Exactly. What in the world? It's crazy. Wait, so this one is really sus to me. Like, extra, extra sus. Because 
especially the guy watching the kids, which makes me really believe that it is mob related or, you yeah. know, like down that path. Also, what's interesting is that George never talked about his time in Italy. Like, there's no record of it. So we have absolutely no idea what he did over there. So for this man to come and say, you're going to pay for the remarks you've made about Mussolini, did something happen to him in Italy? There have been some thoughts that he's been connected to the mafia. And, I mean, we know mob get, mob members, they do not play around. Yeah, I feel like this – I feel like that fits. Yeah. I, I feel like it – makes the most sense now another part of me to play devil's advocate my family is italian we are hot-headed individuals it is just a fact so when you tell us something that we might not want to hear becoming irate is usually autumn you know me (laughs) becoming irate is usually the first thing that happens now would can i say that we'd always make a threatening remark absolutely not but i can see him losing out on the sale, not getting the family life insurance, and he just, like, insult him. Okay, but how did that guy that came to sell the insurance, how did he know that George didn't like Mussolini? Because from my understanding, George and Jenny were living, like, at the time, the community was, it was like an Italian community. Oh. So he had been making those remarks. So it was pretty it was obvious known that he yeah, didn't like Mussolini. That he didn't like okay. Mussolini. So, Casey, our editor, Brian C., just made a really good point. George and Jenny's two oldest sons were fighting in the war, which was World War II, and that was against Italy. So, it's interesting that with two of their children actively in this war, that all of this kind of twists into this one big mess of politics and, I mean, who knows? I'm just mind blown over this one. It does make sense. Oh, but also let's think about too. So we talked about the first time Jenny was woken up on Christmas Eve with somebody who had the wrong number. They Mm -hmm. claimed. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that tying in now? Like those are the questions. Like was that person calling and had this been a plan all along? They called to wake them up. So here's my question to you. Those two phone calls or the two things that woke her up in the middle of the night. I do think those were intentional. Yeah. So why do you think that whoever was responsible for what happened, why do you think that they wanted to wake her up twice? That I mean what reason could they have for that? Maybe just to mess with her? Like it was a yeah. game to them, like a twisted game. And I don't know, like the kindness in me wants to think that somebody wouldn't want everyone to die. You know? That's really thoughtful of you, but I don't know if it. <laughs> I don't know if know. that stands in this I know. investigation. I know it's tough. It's really, really tough to to come up with all of these answers. But I mean, now I'm gonna throw out like a few other interesting facts. I'm not saying like these things could like they could all be related. Yeah. So. After everything happened, a telephone repairman came and told the families that their wires have been cut and not burned. So we remember that they said that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. However, I read in a report that when the house was on fire, there were like three lights that were on downstairs in the window. So while the house was burning? Yeah. Huh. So if 
that was the case, then why would the electricity still be on? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Are you ready? Another witness comes forward saying he had seen a man during the fire with a block and tackle that was used for removing engines, which was connected to the reason why George's trucks didn't start when he was trying to move them against the house to get upstairs. Weird. So people say they saw this person the night of the crime? Yes. But here's what we need to keep in mind. Like, I mean, it's common for when crimes happen, people come forward and like, yeah, I saw this. You know, so like we don't – this is just things that we're seeing on the internet – Take it with a grain of salt. Yes. Like, we're just saying this. Think about it as you will. But this, I think, is the most interesting thing. So Jenny, obviously, is just grief-stricken that her five children potentially died in this fire. And how are there absolutely no bones left behind? Flesh, nothing. And also, we know that... I've never smelled it, but anybody who has ever smelled burning flesh says it is an absolutely awful stench. And there mm-hmm. is no report of smelling anything like that, which is kind of suspicious. So Jenny conducted a private experiment years after this happened, and she actually burnt animal bones. We're talking like chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones to see if the fire consumed them. So each time she did this, she was left with a heap of charred bones. So an employee at a crematorium informed Mrs. Sauter that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. And it's reported that this home was on the ground and in ashes within 45 minutes. Yeah. Of course, it was still smoldering for a very, very long time, but the house itself was destroyed within 45 minutes. So how does that play into this? It logistically just does not add up. No. So it's so weird how there's so many different conspiracies and still nothing really makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's so many weird little, just little weird pieces to this story that you're just like, how does this tie into this lead or this conspiracy or whatever? They could have gotten kidnapped. The Italian mafia doesn't play games. Okay, so here's my question to you. Do you think they were kidnapped or do you think that... I mean, I think we can say that it's off the table for both of us that they died in the fire. That didn't happen. I don't think so. So do you think that they were killed somewhere or do you think they were kidnapped? Like, what do you think actually happened? I want to believe that they were kidnapped and just lived their life alive. That's what I'd like to think. I don't don't believe... I don't know. I don't want to think they were murdered, but I, like you said, I don't think they they died in that fire. There are just too many weird things leading up to it. So we talk about the ladder. Did they ever find the ladder? Not that I've been able to find. Okay, so we have this ladder that they cannot find. And let's not forget that Jenny was woke up in the middle of the night by a sound of something on the roof. So what if that was the ladder being moved or... I mean, what if that exact time her kids were being taken out of the house? It's very possible. It's terrifying to think about. I was also listening to a podcast on this case, a different podcast, and they were talking about how could that have been whatever she thought she heard? Was that the thing that set the house on fire? What started the fire? 
we're saying faulty wiring, but was that loud commotion of a rock hitting the roof? I mean, she said she thought it was hitting the roof, but mm-hmm. in all reality, someone could have thrown something through a window. You know, yeah. we don't know. Could that have been? Because 30 minutes later, she smelled smoke. I mean, that kind of adds up. It's so strange. I think the thing that makes it so hard is because it was in the 1940s when, you know, technology is not where it's at. DNA, we didn't even have what what was mm-hmm. DNA at that point. You know, so there were so many things that we weren't able to really look into. Yeah. And also, I think in this case too, which we've already kind of gone over it, I mean, people started sending in all of these tips, but there was a reward, you know, $10,000. Mm-hmm. So another thing, and when we were researching, this was the main question that I had and the thing that stuck out to me the most was back to the beef liver. And why did the fire chief lie? Why did he bury that? I don't understand his motives. And I think that that is so weird for him to go to those lengths to, he says, to help the grieving family or whatever. But what was his motivation to help this grieving family if that was really his intentions? Like, why was he so adamant about helping them in their grief? I just don't understand the whole fire chief thing. I it That's not, a ginormous question mark to me. And it's just so strange. Like, it's so strange. So the children and grandchildren of the Sauter family continued their own investigation. So here are the theories that they have. Oh, man. They have a theory that the local mafia tried to recruit George and he declined, which could make sense as to why he kept his time in Italy very secret because why would you come and say, yeah, the mafia wanted me to join them? Like, that's scary. Yeah. That's very scary. So they also said that the mafia could have potentially tried to extort money from him and he refused. Here's another one. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. No. I think their first idea was the right one. Like, the more I hear, the more I'm leaning towards that it was – it had to have been the mafia. I mean, times are so different now, you know? Oh, yeah. The mafia was a very prevalent thing. It makes sense to me. That's what I think I want to believe is that the mafia had a hand in this. I think that's where I'm at, too, because – also, let's talk about how there was no evidence found. Exactly. They did investigate this for two years, the FBI, as a kidnapping, and they found nothing. So this was a clean job. Whoever did this did this clean, and which also just keeps pushing me towards the whole mafia idea because, I mean, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. Exactly. Well, also, let's talk about that letter that Jenny got with the picture of who she thought was her son, Louis. That to me, like, was it a code? Was he trying to say something? Like, because the it letter, weird. the quote didn't make any sense no. to anybody. I don't know what that was. It was like random letters. Yeah. So, you know, if he was kidnapped, was that a message saying help, you know? Or maybe it was him just telling her that he's alive. Or it could be completely fake. It could be someone, maybe the person who did this or people who did this just to mess with the family or to just, you know, not let it die out. It could also just be a 
sick person a who sick just joke. wants yeah. yeah the family to get their hopes up and it not be anything this is one of those cases though that I kind of in a sense to be honest I hate it because we're literally never going to know what happened to these kids mm-hmm. ever we can believe what we want to believe but it makes me mad that we aren't going to have closure I know this is one of those cases that you just really want to get closure because there's so many weird parts to it that you just want to know. Like, yeah. And we're never, ever going to know. The billboard is now no longer up in Fayetteville. They took it down shortly um, after the Sauters passed away. So essentially, if you haven't heard about the case, you're, you honestly might not ever know that it was going on. However, for people in southern West Virginia, this is a very popular case. So that kind of keeps it alive. But for people listening that aren't from here... This is insane. This is insane. And I don't think anyone who would have any information is even alive at this point. 1945, yeah. Which is really just cements this in stone that there will never be answers unless we find a message in a bottle or something. I don't know, but. Maybe there's like a, um, what's the word, like a time capsule buried maybe, somewhere. Maybe someone wrote a letter and just like stuck it under a mattress and. In 200 years, we'll find it, and it'll give us all the answers. I guess that's what we can hope for. Only time will tell. Crazier things have happened. You're not wrong. Well, sorry to leave everyone on a cliffhanger. We hope your mind is racing, and let us know what you think actually happened. I'm very curious to hear what the locals here are saying and what people who are from that town, what they have to say about it, because I'm sure... This is something that has been passed down from generations and people talk about this because it's so just wild. And I'm very curious to see what everyone has to say about it because I know I'm completely mind blown. Exactly. So those are the facts of the case. That's that's all she wrote. That's all we've got. Thank you guys so much for listening to Crime and the Coalfields. This podcast is brought to you by Notoriously Morbid and Rose and Questenberry Funeral Chapels. We have more information on this case over on our website, and you can also find things from our other cases, pictures, videos, interviews. You can find all that over there at WVNSTV.com. We'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is a production of WVNS 59 News in Beckley, West Virginia. It's written and produced by Casey Gentile and Autumn Collins. Production and editing is done by Brian C., For more information on this case and others, you can visit our website at wvnstv.com.